Welcome to the Geneva Peace Week podcast series, a project of the Geneva Peacebuilding Platform. Geneva Peace Week is a leading annual forum in the international peacebuilding calendar. It's a week of events, workshops, videos, and podcasts just like this one, hosted by different organizations and actors around the world. Founded on the core belief that each person, actor, and institution has a role to play in building peace and resolving conflict. You're listening to a podcast produced for Geneva Peace Week 2020, held from the 2nd to the 6th of November with both live events and pre-recorded contributions. For more content like this, join the conversation at genevapeaceweek.ch. A warm welcome to you all. My name is Justine Annies Hanslin and I work for World Vision, who is a member of the International Partnership on Religion and Sustainable Development, otherwise known as PARD. PARD brings together governmental and intergovernmental entities with diverse civil society organizations and faith-based organizations to engage the social capital and capacities vested in diverse faith communities for sustainable development and humanitarian assistance in the spirit of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. More than 80% of the global population affiliates with a religion. Religious values and beliefs influence the thoughts and actions of billions of people. Religious actors contribute daily and significantly to sustainable development around the world, and their unique global and local networks reach into the most remote corners of the world. Religious communities and actors can and have shown to be a source of guidance and support, sharing the responsibilities of care and acting as a support network to vulnerable groups during the COVID-19 pandemic. In many contexts, faith actors have played an important role through creative and practical approaches to alleviate the impact of the COVID-19 measures and effects on vulnerable populations. PARD's contribution to Geneva Peace Week 2020 is a dialogue with local and international religious actors who are each addressing the challenges COVID-19 has had on their community. This podcast is a collaboration with Islamic Relief Worldwide, World Vision International, Side by Side, and World Evangelical Alliance, who lead PARD's work streams on health, gender, environments, and peace. Today, we will take you to Delhi, Birmingham, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Myanmar, and Thailand to see what faith leaders and representatives of faith groups have done in the response to COVID-19. What were some of the successes and challenges that they faced, and what stories of hope emerged from their experiences? I'm looking forward to having you listen with me today. Today, I'm speaking with Kuki Rakom, who is based in New Delhi, India. She is the Director of Training and Mobilization with the Evangelical Fellowship of Indian Commission on Relief, otherwise known as EFICOR. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. In your experience, which communities have been most hit by the challenges of COVID-19? I think COVID-19 hit um, you know, the entire community, the entire world. Um, at the same time, um, you know, many people have been sick in India because of it. Many people have lost lives. Uh, but one of the most hard hit by COVID-19 in India are not just the ones who have been sick because of it or, or who have had to face the stigma uh, because of the, of the virus, but uh, the poor, the poor, especially the migrant workers, the migrant laborers uh, who have had to suffer the economic impact 
of the lockdowns because of COVID-19 have been hit the hardest, I think, um, in India, particularly in the communities where I live in Delhi. And the saddest thing is that because they had no place to live anymore, a lot of the migrant workers in India had to walk back home. They had to walk hundreds and some more than a thousand kilometers because all transport was stopped. But I think one of the things that we greatly mourn in India is the impact that it has had on all the migrant workers who have lost their jobs, who lost everything. Many lost their lives as they walked home. That sounds like a challenging and difficult situation. I guess I'm interested in how you have seen communities respond to these changes that they're seeing around them. I've been amazed at the way that the communities, whoever they are, whatever they do, have just rallied around so much um, uh, to address the needs of people around them. You know, I, as you introduced, I work for a local uh, Christian NGO that, that works in different parts of India. And we work with these migrant workers in the villages and in the cities as well. And uh, you know, so much of, of the first donation, the first response came first from our own staff because there was no time to write to donors and ask them for money, you know, our supporters from around the world. But we had to respond. We knew we had to do something immediately. So the first responders, even in terms of giving money for this, were our staff. And then it was people associated with us, local communities, local churches, who just gave, who wanted to desperately help people because they heard it in the news, they read about it, they had seen people in social media suffering, and they really wanted to give. So I was amazed and so blessed by the fact that so many people, you know, the different organizations that we belong to, the different churches, individuals came, came together and gave so much money for the support of this. I think that really is a testimony to the importance of working with local faith communities. I mean, as you described, faith communities really acted as first responders here in this instance, and we really see that. So I guess I'm interested, what are the kinds of needs that your local church community were responding to in these first days and weeks as the COVID crisis started to have an impact? There were so many who could no longer buy food because they were suddenly without jobs. They were not getting their salaries anymore. One day they were employed, the next day they were not. And so, so many churches got together to help, even the church that I belong to, help um, to support these people who were, you know, who were under the threat of losing their home or who, who wanted to get home but no longer had money because they no longer had salaries. How has the role of faith leaders evolved as a result of COVID-19? You know, I was also very encouraged to hear from many mission organizations, you know, those who are, who never focused on the social aspect of work, who never regularly did this kind of thing. So many of them had to respond because they had no other choice but to respond. They could not just see people, you know, suffering, people going hungry, people in great need. They just could not see that. And so they also became very active and engaging. And the interesting thing is that these organizations then have come back to us now in the recent past saying, please teach us, teach us skills so that we can respond better even in the future. They said to us that we don't want this to be a one-time thing uh, that we do only because of COVID, but we want to respond more and more to the social needs of the community. And COVID-19 was something that really taught them the need and uh, the way that they could respond to these social needs. So that was really, really encouraging. As a Christian organization, have you worked with other faith communities in your response to COVID-19? 
Yes, I think in a country like India, you know, we work with all faith communities. Everybody has a faith and everybody, you know, most people come from different faiths. So I think in the work that we've done, the people that we have served, the people that we have worked with, the people that we have rallied around with have been people of different faiths. But what there was one interesting incident, especially in, during in the beginning of the lockdown, when there was so much fear about COVID-19 and how it could affect people and how lives could be affected. And we didn't know how dangerous it was at that time. Uh, you know, our staff, were giving out relief and they went to a different slums where people were in great need. And I, I know that there was one slum where, you know, we could have given food to everybody because everybody was in need, but we just didn't have enough to do that. And so we had chosen specific families who were, you know, the worst, who were the worst affected or the most poor in the community. And a riot could have started because everybody wanted something, but the local temple, the local Hindu temple there, uh, the priests of that temple, you know, have a very uh, important place in the community. So they were the ones who helped our staff to, to manage the crowd, to identify those people. And the temple was actually used as a distribution place so that people would come and uh, collect the food materials that we were giving out from the temple. So that was an excellent example of of different faiths working together. It didn't matter at that time what faith you were, what faith you know you, you were helping. All, all that mattered was that we worked together so that the neediest uh, could be served. So Cookie, you've already talked a bit about how you received financial support initially, but could you describe to me a little bit more the challenges and opportunities you experienced or saw when going about getting funding for the work of Ethicor? You know, when we first started out with our COVID response, the biggest challenge was, is that, was and is, is that it is not a disaster that is isolated in one region or in a particular community. COVID-19 has affected everybody. And what we found was that, you know, even our regular donors were not able to respond as they would respond to perhaps a flood in some part of India or something like that. Everybody was affected. So it was very challenging for all of us. And a lot of our traditional donors, those who gave, uh, those who regularly support us, were able to uh, give support only for the communities that they already worked with. So we, that was a bit restricting, although it was, you know, it was a blessing. But as Efico, we were blessed because we were able to work with businesses and corporates. Now that requires skill. Not everybody uh, is able to have those connections, is able to meet the requirements of corporates, of businesses who are willing to support in such circumstances. And not everybody knows, because if you don't have a relationship or you don't have a connection with these businesses and corporates, there's no way that you can suddenly make a connection in these times. Thank you, Cookie, for sharing your experiences of responding to COVID-19 in India and just the important role that local faith communities can play in responding to the needs of those around them. I'm speaking with Shireen Ashraf, who is the head of global advocacy at Islamic Relief Worldwide. Shireen, could you tell me how you feel religious literacy has played a role in the COVID-19 response in your community? Well, I think religious literacy is, I guess, plays a, a mass amount of uh, foundational um, understanding of where we are in terms of uh, religions and the countries of operation that we operate in as Islamic Relief Worldwide. On a national level, um, 
it was faith communities such as the mosques in my local area who were the first to set up issues, things like food banks and who were able to offer advice um, on, for example, gender-based violence or domestic abuse um, within, within the first couple of hours of uh, lockdown within the, within the UK. On a national level, as an organization, we were able to express, you know, some of the plausibility to others around the humanitarian issues and the development issues of getting partners to be thinking about the frameworks that we needed in order to guide messaging um, for, um, for acting um, in terms of uh, issues that arose with regards to COVID, for example, um, what we did as an agency was that um, we were the first ones to have the PPE equipment uh, within the Middle East to be able to share that in you know various languages around in Arabic and in Bahasa and in other forms in order to create what was a normal custom of the fabric of that particular society to be able to create that through uh, what we call the Adhan so the mosques would then um, were able to share that information through their um, loudspeakers. Secondly, it was women in Pakistan who were able to share information via each other via rooftops uh, when it came to some of operationalizing some of the things around PPE. Um, again, that was something that we did from either the mosque perspective and then that was relayed down to uh, local grassroots communities. But I think one of the biggest thing was um, establishing the dialogue within the faith communities and the interfaith communities to be able to implement some of the um, guidances around COVID-19. What communities do you feel have been hit the hardest by the challenges of COVID? I think the communities that have been hit most are, are the, the vulnerable communities, the communities uh, who, who have an intersectional approach in, in the sense that people from the aging communities uh, to young people to mums who are unable to go out. Um, those are the communities that were hit the most. most uh, the most recent cases that we found post-COVID has been individuals who were um, within the partners uh, who were in lockdown in which there was a domestic abuse situation. So the vulnerability in amongst that was uh, largely exponentially uh, exacerbated as a result of uh, uh, COVID-19 and what we saw was a rise in um, in domestic abuse cases particularly on a national level and what we found that in in places like um, uh, Pakistan and, and places like that what we noticed was that there was a rise of uh, domestic abuse when perpetrators were living in the same place so that was one element of what we saw again the vulnerability of um, older people who were then not able to access um, um, spaces outside like shopping, um, like accessing the local faith space or accessing, um, you know, family members, that was also a, a driver for vulnerability. And if you look at both of those, what we found was that the marginalised communities were more affected. So we know that responding to a pandemic like COVID requires resources and gathering people together. Um, in your experience, how have faith communities been able to access resources and how have, has this support helped them bringing messages into their community? So from, from, from the national level, I think uh, the community during, because during lockdown, it was Ramadan and for the Muslim communities, they were 
ever so generous and therefore fostering that collaboration within the kind of the religious actors we were able to these were the practical considerations people had to give uh, the equivalent of tithe which is zakat and what we found was that during that period that you know a lot of uh, financial access and financial resources were we were able to access and therefore that played a role in some of the material that we we put out particularly around during the during the covid around uh, you know washing your hands making sure you wear a mask and making sure you keep your distance on the national level we were able to create similar campaigns particularly in the middle east in which we um, created very similar messaging that was also um, that helped communities from all the way from lebanon down to iraq so from what you've seen what do you think the best way to get messages out into your community has been during COVID-19? I think the best way to get messaging out, I have to say, has been through social media. Um, we have, uh, for example, within just within my my faith community, we have at least about three, four hundred women on one WhatsApp group. And equally, when we had to share any messaging on COVID, it would be through that channel. Uh, equally, and then when I've also heard in places like Iraq, uh, what we found was uh, that was also the best one of the best methods of uh, um, projecting messaging. At the same time, when we're projecting the very highlighting, wear your masks, make sure that you wash your hands and you have your social distancing. You know, at the same time, there was um, other other areas in which there was messaging that was not so welcome, which was some of the fake news that you would have. But it was easier to combat the fake news as opposed to the the real news during this period. Um, and the reason for that was that we were able to at least source that with the navigate it and navigate the challenges of that by having our logos on there to show that this was um, uh, the proper channel of and the proper um, way of getting information and proper sourcing of information. Where have you seen gaps in funding and support for local faith communities and their response? Is there areas that you feel have been lacking in expertise or supplies or personnel? And are there needs from the wider community to address these gaps? So I think with, with regards to gaps in funding resources and particularly around in, in COVID-19, I think now's the time for us to reimagine what aid looks like during that period. We've had, um, urgent funding gaps, particularly around uh, PPE equipment, particularly around um, uh, the global response to uh, vaccinations. Um, you know, funding is committed by countries and international financial institutions and governments. But what we need sometimes is the national, national, the national action of those countries to bolster economies. And what we need is, you know, for example, um, we need a fully coordinated and a prioritized approach to the most vulnerable um, countries, uh, you know, ensuring that there's sufficient protective equipment, ensuring that there's sufficient health workers. Uh, if you look at the way that the pandemic has happened, most women, which is 70% of the women, actually are part of the force, uh, the frontline force of, um, uh, of, of, of um, the frontline services. So that has meant that women have had to stay home. And, and as a result, what you saw was that the lack of uh, access, and you'll see that the economies that we are living in now are seeing that uh, that has continued and continues to be the largest funding gap that we've seen during, during, our, during the, the period of COVID-19. One of the things is that there are, you know, 
there are global uh, summit responses to all these uh, areas. However, it hasn't gone far enough and I still feel as though there's so many, so many gaps that need to be um, bridged. And during this period specifically, we can reimagine what aid looks like. Not only have we had the crisis of, um, uh, in, in USA around Black Lives Matter, but we also have to think about the urgent action that is needed in this period of understanding where we are uh, as, as governments, as, um, as aid agencies on where to fill in these gaps. Often what happens in, in these communities is the faith actors that are the first to come, be on the ground. And even in the UK perspective, if you looked at some of the, the drivers of change, it was faith-based communities or civil society action that through campaigns and partnerships have brought people and resources together from across the county, from across the regional, national and uh, international divide. So I think it's more important that actually during this period, we reimagine what aid looks like and reimagine how localization could be a, you know, an approach to um, localization uh, as an approach to effective aid. Thank you, Shaheen, for your valuable insights, in particular, the points you highlighted on religious literacy as an important factor around messaging. And you quite clearly emphasized a secondary point that the COVID-19 pandemic response really requires resource mobilization in order to ensure that clear messaging reaches out to all our communities. We are now joined by Reverend Siani, who is a senior pastor at Tabernacle of Power and Praise Ministries International in Lusaka, Zambia. He is currently working for World Vision in the Democratic Republic of Congo as a Channel of Hope specialist on the Ebola and COVID-19 response. Reverend Siani, can you tell me why you think it's important to engage faith leaders in the wake of an emergency such as COVID-19, particularly in rural and fragile contexts like you see in the Congo? Uh, the role of faith leaders in these health, uh, um, healthy emergencies is very, very, very vital because the faith leaders are the ones that have the general public, they have the people, the faith leaders have uh, the respect of the communities, the faith leaders' voice is normally heard much more than the other voices. And uh, in a place like uh, Jarasi and the other places that I've, I have worked, especially in rural areas, faith leaders are very much respected. The respect they carry in the community is such that when they say something, the people hear. And uh, when you look at the uh, misinformation that normally is spread during pandemics, if this information gets into the hands of the faith leaders, it becomes very destructive. And so when you get to the faith leaders with the right information, you get the faith leaders uh, down to their, to their level and make them understand the situation and give them the correct messaging the messages are more acceptable than when medical personnel would go out there, than when government people would go out there with messages. So it's very critical to mobilize faith leaders because they have a voice. 
So why do you think it's so important for faith leaders, particularly in developing contexts, to receive accurate public health information and training on how to communicate it in their communities? Uh, as long as faith leaders, religious communities think it's not a physical thing, then it gets out of hand because they think the, all they need is to pray, lay hands on the people and the people are going to recover and all those uh, things come in. But the acceptability that it is a disease that is physical and needs physical attention, physical distancing and the medical teams to come in, that acceptability has been there just like it was in Ebola. Maybe because of Ebola, it has been easier now to accept COVID than the difficulties that we had. Ensuring health leaders have access to health education and training sounds like it's been really important to ensure both accurate information is shared and in dispelling myths. But what are some of the barriers you've faced in trying to reach more faith leaders? The funding sources have not seriously been established to target faith communities. It is an important uh, issue to consider because faith communities have their people, faith communities gather people, faith communities are listened to. And so if these resources, uh, say funding for mass, funding for hygiene uh, utensils are directed to the uh, faith communities, I am certain that we shall make more inroad in preventing and eradicating COVID. So what has it been like working in a fragile context like DRC, where there is often instability and conflict? And how does this affect what you do? The fragile contexts have, uh, have a lot of faces. Number one, difficult to reach. For you to go to a certain place, you would need military escort, which attracts a lot of attention, negative attention for that matter. Secondly, these places don't have internet. So you cannot have an online meeting with them and do awareness with them online. And so, there are conflicts that are happening within these places. So you may manage to get to a place or plan to get to a place, but when you reach there or before you reach there, you are told, sorry, you can't come because there, is, there are some tensions, there are some conflicts. So this has seriously impacted on the reach, to reach out to the people who really need. So what do you do in these situations? We have trained religious leaders from various communities, managed to bring them to town where they can come. Because if I went into the village, I stand out. My profile is high because I am, I'm a foreigner. They greet me. My, my, my language comes out and they know you are not part of us. And so I cannot dare. Now, uh, we have trained these religious leaders who have come and gone back to go and speak among their own. And many of them have succeeded to hold meetings. They have succeeded to hold workshops. They have succeeded to actually give out this uh, awareness messaging. And so 
It is slow, but we are getting there. Why do you think that it's important for interfaith communities to work together? Bring about a, a neutral platform where everybody feels safe. When that environment is created, it is amazing how Muslims and Christians can work together. In the last workshop I had, we even had someone from the Baha'i faith. And so there is that acceptability because uh, there is a common identity. We all identify ourselves with what is happening, with the pandemic. We, we accept whether you are a Muslim or a Christian or a Baha'i or a Hindu, you are affected by the coronavirus in the same manner. There is no difference. And to protect, you get the protection in the same way without any difference. Amazingly, that has been experienced here. If you are going to try and convince someone why it's important to invest in faith leaders, what would you say? That if we trained people correctly, give them the correct information, have them catch their passion, give them a touch, a light, they are able to light the world, despite the circumstances that, that might be life-threatening. To me, that is a story of hope. Thank you so much, Reverend Siani, for speaking with me. You've made a strong argument for engaging faith leaders, particularly in fragile contexts. As you've highlighted, they are embedded so deeply within communities that are often difficult or impossible to reach by outsiders. And for this reason, it's so important that they are equipped and supported to share accurate health information within their communities. Thank you once again so much for joining me today. I'm now joined by Ms. Wawa Yu in Myanmar, who is the program manager at Spirits in Education Movement based in Yangon. In your experience, what role are religious actors playing in the COVID-19 response? Generally, there is to point to a threat from the religious leader who are engaging with the community in this time of COVID. So one is um, directly dealing with the community in terms of the supporting or helping the the, the needs, their needs, uh, for example, uh, distributing the mugs and other uh, materials like cleaning soap or other things. And, and in some areas, some <clears throat> uh, food supplies uh, for the poor people in their uh, villages, in their communities, and facilitating the, uh, facilitating the leadership role between the government officials and, and the kind of community leaders and the villagers, uh, particularly the issues for the returnees, the, the migrant workers who come back to Myanmar in their own communities like that. So they, our targeted alumni, um, religious leaders are taking that role. But another aspect is the spiritually or religiously engaging with the community. It means um, they share or kind of they teach the Dhamma talk it is some kind of guidance uh, meditation or some uh, sharing, sharing their uh, Buddhist teaching, for example, uh, how to meditate or how to engage your, our daily 
uh, struggles <laughs> in this COVID time. Uh, how to be mindful for ourselves, how to be um, not uh, violent to each other in terms of what we need or uh, the negotiations among the communities based on the needs like that. So that is the, that is the two uh, aspects that I've been learning from the observation of the religious leaders uh, among, um, within this COVID time. How have you seen religious actors communicating to their communities during this time? The religious literacy, on the other hand, it is very challenging uh, task for us <laughs> as the, the ones who are trying to facilitate between this religious literacy and the interpretation and the distribution sharing methodologies between those religious leaders and the communities. But okay, from the perspective of engaging uh, with the community in this COVID time, this is really helpful. Like uh, sharing, caring, and mindful actions um, to be aware of ourselves, not to be the nonviolent actions. Uh, um, like uh, basic uh, principles, principles or rules and re regulations, like um, like not to kill, not to not to kill, not to uh, steal. Like like that kind of basic principles are very much um, helpful in this time, um, especially to help healing or kind of mitigation uh, with the people anxiety and the other um, basic needs uh, to share each other like that. Do you think that COVID-19 will be a catalyst for change? Uh, particularly for me, I really have to remind myself of balancing myself of that kind of expectation or the realities that we've been uh, dealing on the daily basis. So in this COVID time, uh, the religious leaders we've been working with, uh, I, I I think, and our observation indicates that they have more reflection for themselves. So, which is very supportive um, for the community on the other hand, because when they can really reflect on themselves, like, oh, what, why these kind of uh, things are happening in this country, in this community, in this, or whatever that is the globally pandemic is happening. So, there are a lot a lot uh, to learn from this COVID thing in this time. Because uh, uh, previously we have, we all are going urgent and rush each other. And this is, these are very uh, priorities for me, blah, blah, like that. And no, not really um, getting or paying attention to the others. But now we all have to stop at least or kind of pause. In this moment, they have to, re they can really reflect it is not only them and it is also us. What they want them, what we want them to become and at the same time, what they want themselves to be or what they want their own community to be like this. So this is very uh, good timing for the critical reflection for themselves and also for ourselves as well. So that is, the, that is the ongoing process for all of us for that, according to my observation in, in, in this time. And on the other hand, that is the hope <laughs> to continue. Thank you, Wawa Yu, for sharing your insights regarding the role of faith leaders in responding to communities affected by COVID-19. You've highlighted the importance of taking a holistic response to attend to the physical needs, but also the emotional and spiritual needs of people who have been affected by this pandemic. 
Thank you so much for sharing with me today. To end our discussion today, we are going to speak with Sum Boon Chung Pram Pri, otherwise known as Mu, who is the Executive Secretary of International Network of Engaged Buddhists, currently based in Thailand. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Mu. Can you please tell me a little bit about the effect that you've seen of COVID-19 in Thailand? When the COVID-19 pandemic started, Thailand is the first country out of China that had the case of the COVID. In the beginning situation in January and February is quite hectic. We don't know about this virus enough because of the limited information that's come to the worry of the people as well as to any level in the society. In the beginning, the Buddhist Sangha in Thai society what they can do is just to give a blessing and also make a Buddhist chanting for the well-being of the people. At that time, that's what they can do. When we know more information about this virus, uh, with the government, with the local community, with the healthcare volunteer, with the Buddhist Sangha and the other faith groups has been dealing with that. In March, the Supreme Patriarch of the Buddhist uh, Society in Thailand has announced to the Buddhist temple to support to the poor people. As in the past, the Buddhist temple in Thai society has been playing the role as a center of the community. And with this situation, crisis situation, the temple become the center, not just only for the monk, even the lay community also help the temple community to providing food. Uh, until now, until September, situation in Thailand is uh, quite under control. We had not more than 4,000 cases in the country. Situation is quite okay. But with the neighboring countries like Myanmar, Bangladesh, Nepal, India, and other countries, situation getting worse. As you realized the situation was getting worse in neighboring countries, what did the Buddhist community in Thailand do to respond? And that's why in April, International Network of Engaged Buddhists partner in those four countries has been put up the proposal on the mindful action, COVID-19 emergency response. And with that project, we has been raising funds and support to the local community through our partners. Right now, we have reached out over 26,000 people in the local community. Some of them, the women, vulnerable in the community, slum people, as well as the people in the refugee camp, like in Myanmar, and also in the remote area, like in uh, Bangladesh. This is the what we help to support them. You know, we still have uh, limited funding to support. Now the number of the cases in India and in Myanmar is increasing. We need to have uh, raising more funding to support the local community through our partner. And with our partner, a lot of 
Buddhist community in those countries, even their minority in those countries, they also support. For example, in Bangladesh, they also reach out to the Muslim communities in those areas as well. Or even in India community, you know, even the Hindu community and so on. This is the, the work that is uh, using this uh, tragedy to make a collaboration and support to each other amongst the faith community in the local area. We've heard from our dialogue with different faith representatives about the critical role they have played providing community health information, emotional and spiritual support to their faith communities and the wider community affected by COVID-19. Despite often being limited by funding resources, faith actors have played a role of coaches, mentors, spiritual leaders and restorers of hope at times when communities were facing lockdowns, the loss of jobs and livelihoods, and a general fear and uncertainty of what would happen next. Our dialogue with different faith representatives has really highlighted how important the role of faith leaders and faith groups are, no matter their background, and the importance of investing in them in the COVID-19 response. This podcast was submitted on behalf of PARD for Geneva Peace Week 2020. It was narrated by Justine Annies Hanslin and made in collaboration with Islamic Relief Worldwide, World Vision International, Side by Side and World Evangelical Alliance, who lead PARD's work streams on health, gender, environments and peace. A big thank you to Rachel Travener, Shaheen Ashraf, Lillian Kurtz and Maya Asaf. Thank you to our editors, Claudia Seitzel and Alexander Chichenko. And finally, a very special thanks to our speakers who shared their insights with us today. If you would like to find out more about the work of PARD, you can go to www.partner-religion-development.org or you can follow us on Twitter at PARD Secretariat. That's P-A-R-D Secretariat. Thanks for joining us for this installment of the Geneva Peace Week podcast series. Don't forget to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review about something you learned. You can also visit our website to continue the conversation with the makers of this episode. Or join us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Geneva Peace Week. Above all, thank you for being here, and we hope you'll join us again for another episode.